0: Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books! The celebration is on! The Washington Nationals are the world champions! Welcome to Episode 5 of the Curly W Live from the Field podcast. My name is Kyle Brostwitz, and I'm coming to you from the Curly W Live studios here in Washington, D.C. On this episode, we are joined by noted D.C. baseball historian and author Fred Fromer. Uh, Longtime listeners of the podcast will remember Fred as a guest on several podcasts during the 2018 season, in which he and I looked at each All-Star game um, held in Washington, D.C., leading up to the 2018 All-Star game. Go back in the archives and check out those podcasts. Fred is the author of several books, including You Gotta Have Heart, Washington Baseball from Walter Johnson to the 2019 World Series champion Nationals. So I wanted to have Fred on to talk about his book, which he just released in April. Uh, He released an updated version that now includes a chapter of the 2019 World Series. Uh, He originally released the book in 2013, um, and as many of you have heard me say over the years, this is the best book in D- on DC baseball history out there. Um, now that there's an updated chapter, another reason to check it out and pick it up on Amazon and wherever you can buy your books. In addition to authoring this book, Fred is also the head of the sports business practice at Dewey Square Group, a communications firm in Washington, where he provides strategic communication and other services to his sports clients. Prior to joining Dewey Square, Fromer worked at CNN the Washington Post, the Associated Press. Um, and while at the Associated Press, he created a groundbreaking beat on the intersection of sports and politics. Uh, he's also written pieces for the New York Times, Politico, uh, The Atlantic, Washingtonian Magazine, and as we'll talk about in the podcast, the Sports Business Journal. Uh, you can also find Fred on Twitter at Fromer f-f-r-o-m-m-e-r you can find all of his work there remember you can listen to this podcast including all past episodes through our blog which is curlyw.moblogs.com, uh, Apple Podcasts, Art19, Spotify and wherever else you can find your podcasts also keep sending in your fan memories for use in our From the Stands podcast and check out From the Booth with Charlie and Dave so let's get to it here is From the Field Episode 5 with Fred Fromer enjoy all right, welcome, Fred, to the Curly W Live Studios. I am once again in Washington D.C. Uh, where are you joining us from? I'm also in D.C. Cat the Triangle. Okay. Um, well, thank you for joining the podcast today. To talk about your, I guess it's new slash updated uh, book on D.C. baseball history, and uh, we'll talk about a pretty cool base, uh, article you wrote recently. Um, that's kind of um, you know, in line of with with what we're going with what's going on in, in Major League Baseball right now, and. Um, so once again, uh, thank you for taking the time to hop on the podcast. Thank you, Kyle. So let's start with the book and specifically the title it's called You Gotta Have Heart. And that's in quotation marks. So can you tell me a little bit about where that quote came from and how it became the title of the book?
1: Yeah, it's from a Broadway musical called Damn Yankees. And uh, as some of you listeners know, the old Washington Senators had kind of a long tradition of losing. And uh, so it's about a middle-aged Senators fan who's so frustrated at all losing that he sells his soul to the devil to become transformed to a 25-year-old center fielder named Joe Hardy who leads the team to the pennant over the New York Yankees. And uh, there is actually a, a song in the middle of the play uh, and the movie called You Gotta Have Heart where the manager sings that uh, to his team. And uh, it's really true. I mean, you actually hear guys like Bryce Harper back when he was on the Nets, He would actually talk about needing heart. And it's it's a, it's a great way to talk about having the passion and the energy for this game.
0: Absolutely. And it kind of, in a way, falls in line with what our motto was this year in terms of finishing the fight and staying in the fight, um, kind of that exactly. motivation type type message that takes teams sometimes.
1: Uh, sorry to interrupt, Davey Martinez also uh, having that heart scare and then he would point to his heart mm-hmm. and talk about how, uh, you know, that the heart of the team and the heart, his heart were so important. And, and so it's, it was absolutely, it was uh, definitely a trend last year that, that
0: continued this. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the book um, in general, before we get to specifically about um, your edition that you uh, recently released readers of the book, it's a D.C. baseball history book, but what do you, as the author, feel that uh, they should get out of it, or, or you hope they get out of reading it?
1: It's, it's really kind of a, a sweep, a big sweep of Washington baseball history and a story of redemption, and by that I mean, as I referenced earlier, the Senators were a pretty bad team for much of the 20th century. They started out with 11 straight losing seasons and inspired the, this phrase about Washington, first in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. There was a brief period of, of really great baseball here in the 20s and 30s when the Senators won all three of their pennants and their only World Series in 1924. But that kind of ended abruptly in the mid-30s. And then again, they were terrible for decades. And then, of course, two baseball teams wound up losing, the, leaving town. The Senators left to become the Twins, an expansion team, lasted 11 years, became the Rangers. Major League Baseball had written off Washington as a city that couldn't support a baseball team. So to see Washington get a team and not only uh, feel the competitive team after a few years of rebuilding, but also to see them finally get to the World Series 95 years after their first one really is a great story of redemption and shows that the city has fallen in love with baseball as, as it had in the 20s and 30s.
0: So who were some of the uh, people you interviewed for the book, not just recent players or current players, but um, historical figures? Who, who did you really get to, to talk to and an in interview and who were some of your favorite interviews?
1: Well, I, I love talking to the old-time players, guys like uh, Frank Howard, uh, who's known as the Capital Punisher, hit uh, tons of home runs at old RFK Stadium. Roy Sievers, was a slugger for a little bit earlier period. And Eddie Brinkman, who was actually the shortstop on the centers, good friend of Frank Howard's, guy who um, had some terrible seasons. He hit only 188 and 187 in consecutive years. Ted Williams becomes manager, and Brinkman tells me how Ted Williams really transformed him, and he actually became a really good he, he already was a great fielder and became a good hitter, 266, 262, in the next couple of years, and was an all-star candidate. So um, guys like that were really fun to talk to. Uh, they had some great stories. And uh, Bowie Kuhn was a great one as well. I can get into that if you like a funny story you told me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead.
1: So um, Bowie Kuhn was the commissioner of baseball um, in the 60s and 70s, um, and um, I think early into the early 80s as well. Um, he also grew up in Washington, D.C., and operated the old – manual scoreboard at Griffith Stadium. Oh,
0: wow, I didn't remember know that.
1: Yeah, and then as fate would have it, uh, he was the commissioner when the Senators moved to Texas in 71, so he oversaw the team leaving and no replacement team uh, to take over. He told me it was the only time that he cried as baseball commissioner, he just couldn't do anything to stop move. Uh, the move. The writing was on the wall, the owner supported it. Um, Louis Kuhn also told me a funny story. Um, at opening day 1969, um, it was his first game as commissioner, and the Senators had a brand new manager, Ted Williams. And at the ballpark that day was Richard Nixon, the new president. And so um, Louie Kuhn is sitting in the stands with Nixon, and he tells him, "When Frank Howard comes to bat, watch how Frank Howard's a more disciplined hitter this year. Ted Williams is really been working with him, make sure he doesn't chase any bad pitches." And as they would have it, the first pitch lands six feet in front of home plate, and Frank Howard swings and misses. And neither Nixon nor Kuhn said anything; they just looked at each other and laughed.
0: Oh, that's good. But other than the 2019 World Series, you know, what's your favorite, whether it's in the book or not, um, your favorite D.C. baseball history story that heard someone tell you or that you've told to groups or a story that you always go to to tell people? What's, I guess, number one on on your list as someone who's really immersed yourself in D.C. baseball history? Yeah, my,
1: my favorite story actually is, believe it or not, a 16 to nothing loss the Senators had to the Yankees in 1933. But that's not the part of the story that I like. Part of the that I like, not to, to glorify violence, but the Senators and Yankees were fierce rivals that year. And they got into this all-out brawl uh, when Ben Chapman of the Yankees spiked Buddy Meyer of the Senators uh, coming to second base. So the, the uh, players stormed the field, but then the hundreds of fans stormed the field. And back then it was mostly men in suits and uh, top hats and ties. And they stormed the field too, and they started going off on the Yankees Things got so bad that the uh, uh, riot police, D.C. riot police, had to come and restore order. And um, the re- great thing about that game, despite the fact that the Yankees crushed the Senators, was it really sparked the Senators. They were only 6-6 six and six early on in the season. Mm-hmm. They turned things around. They cr- crushed the, the uh, competition the rest of the way. They won the pennant. And actually posted the best record of any Washington baseball team ever at six fifty one winning percentage. So I feel like that game, in addition to the looking back at how funny it was in a way that uh, you had had the right place come. It also showed how much heart this team had, and, and that, that they really kind of got motivated after seeing the Yankees beat
0: them up both on the field and off. Early in quarantine, I watched Ken Burns' baseball, the whole entire documentary, all eleven episodes, I think yeah. it is. And what always struck me early on was the the ease at which people got onto the field. Yeah, like the, the the post game, like you know, storming the field, or just getting on the field in general, or even being on the field during the during the play line up in the outfield on the grass and kind of form the wall. It, right. just, it kind of blew my, it just blew my mind and I knew it happened. But to see like all the footage of it just was crazy to me.
1: Even growing up in the 70s, I mean, it wasn't quite that accessible. But, right. you know, when the Yankees would win their World Series, I'm sure you've seen the clips, thousands of fans would storm in the field and the police didn't make any effort to control it. And you'd see, its a great uh, video of Reggie Jackson mm-hmm. really running for his life from uh, right field to, to the dugout because these, these fans were, I mean, they weren't out for blood, but they were out for uh, maybe pieces of hair and other souvenirs. So it was a crazy
0: time. Right. Isn't that how, uh, the, when the Senators were leaving the second time, isn't how the fi- that how the final game ended?
1: That's a great point. Yeah. And, and, and the Senators, the last game was against the Yankees mm-hmm. as they would have it. Um, the uh, Senators, I believe had a seven to five lead and the um, two outs, the ninth inning the fans stormed the field and uh the game actually wound up being recorded as a forfeit to the Yankees. The traditional forfeit score is nine right. nothing. Yankees won the game nine nothing because of a forfeit. Uh, the fans just kind of—it was kind of a funeral and a party all at once. You know, it was like they were angry, but they also wanted to, to kind of celebrate, if you will, about that last game.
0: So let's get to uh, your your update of the book and your recent release. Which which uh, when did it come out? Came out in April. Okay. Uh, so was the plan always to update? your original book, um, Should the Nationals Ever Win a World Series? Was that kind of your, your thinking or your hope?
1: Yeah, the, the offer actually from the publisher, a uh, standing offer was that the Nationals were to even make it to the World Series. So once they won the pennant, um, we were on our way to doing a new edition.
0: So when did you start writing or when did you realize you probably should start writing and to get this book out um, you know, by April? And what was the overall process like um, once, once we won the World Series?
1: Yeah, it was really kind of a rush job. The publisher needed it by the end of November, November. So I had one month to write it and do some interviews as well, do additional interviews, additional research. So as you might imagine, it was, uh, it was you know, every day uh, after work and weekends, but it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, I we I had a little more time to write it, but we wanted to get it out uh, for opening day or right around that time. Of course, this luck would have it. We It doesn't really matter. We could have waited a couple more months. But also the great, one great part of that experience was reaching out to Chuck Todd, Mm -hmm. who's a a big uh, Nats fan and obviously the moderator to meet the press. And he agreed to write the forward, a very moving forward with the book. So uh, that was also done in a very uh, quick time. He wrote it uh, very quickly for me, which I appreciated and did a great job with it. He was this huge Dodgers fan. Right. uh, Interestingly, because his predecessor, David Gregory was also a Dodgers fan who kind of became a Nats fan. And, and Chuck Todd talked about how he gradually became a Nats fan. And it's a, it's a great story because it describes how so many Washingtonians have come to become Nats fans. I mean, we have a lot of locals here, obviously, but there are a lot of people from out of town. Some have kept their old team, but a lot who have gradually shed their old team and become national fans.
0: Yeah. So for someone uh, who's followed, obviously, this team from the start in D.C. baseball history, you interviewed Ryan Zimmerman uh, after the World Series. Now, in the first edition of the book, did you interview him then at all?
1: I didn't, although I did interview him for the Associated Press when I was a reporter. Um, I covered the uh, game of President Obama throughout out the, uh, the first pitch. So I got to talk to him a little bit then and I have met him a couple of times as well. Um, he, he's the same guy. He's incredibly personable and friendly. And he had some great insights when I talked to him uh, last November um, about how when the team hit that low point in their 1931, you know, those numbers be etched into Washington baseball fans, memories forever, that they basically decided, let's just go out and have fun, play baseball, mm-hmm. and really treat every game, not exactly a must win, but almost like a playoff game, have that kind of mentality. And, it, and it really us what David Martinez talked about going 1-0 no today, go 1-0, no, go 1-0. No. And, um, you know, it, it really, it, it really kind of sums up how, I think maybe they weren't playing as tight after that, even though they had a lot more pressure, They realized that they would just have an attitude of having fun. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that would help. And, of course, you saw that uh, with many other manifestations, uh, including Baby Shark. It was a fun-loving team. And uh, I think the more fun they played, the better they played.
0: So you wrote an article for The Washington Post the day after the World Series uh, about the similarities between the Senators and the Nationals. Um, And you also addressed those in the book, which I thought was, in reading the chapter recently, the, the amount of connections you were able to make between the 1924 and sometimes 1925 Senators teams um, to the 2019 World Series so that's kind of what I got out uh, of, of this um, of reading your new book so I was hoping to go through a couple of those with you and if you could just um, you know elaborate a little bit or, or if there's anything more to the story than what you wrote in the book uh, I think that'd be pretty cool to, to talk about. Sure. The chapter opens um, with you talking about Bryce Harper leaving the Nationals to go to the Phillies um, and you compared it to um, the Senators losing Joe Cronin.
1: Sure so Joe Cronin was the uh, Senators star player manager uh, who led them to that last pennant in 1933. And a year later in 1934, the Senators sold him off in a cash deal. Uh, they got a um, middling infielder back, back, but it was basically for money because Clark had no money. And so in that sense, even though he didn't leave as a free agent the way Harper did, money was at the center of it. So that's one, one comparison. they were also great players in their prime, in their twenties. Um, they both played here for seven years that had nearly identical on base percentages, 388 for Harper 387 for Cronin. Their birthdays were four days apart. So it's interesting to see all these comparisons. Um, and, you know, in the case of uh, uh, Cronin, it really signaled the end of competitive baseball in Washington. Uh, they, they really were never a good team after that. Um, and obviously that's one big difference here. The season after Harper leaves, the Nationals won the World Series. So that's one good and happy distinction between the two players and their situations.
0: Uh, the next one I saw and thought was interesting was the comparison between Max Scherzer um, and I believe it was about his his eye injury. Um, and Bobo Newsom, pitcher for the Senators, can you go into that one?
1: Yeah, I'm sure most of your listeners remember that um, Max Scherzer bunted a ball off his face in batting practice and broke his nose. And yet he was able to go out the next day and pitch seven shutout innings in a victory. And it really reminded me of a pitcher named Bobo Newsom in the 1930s. Um, he broke his knee in the third inning, and he went on to continue to pitch, and he pitched a complete game. And after the game, he told reporters – Tell the fans of Washington, I'm sorry, my bones ain't together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was it a? Do you know if was it a comebacker that got him, or was he running? Or
1: I think it was like a line drive, yeah, or comebacker, yeah, that the ball that hit him off a batter. Wow. Uh,
0: the next one was uh, we jump ahead of the world, the wild card game, and you compared uh, the the bad hop that. Uh, uh, off Juan Soto's bat that eventually propelled the Nationals to the victory to another famous bat hop uh, in D.C. baseball in 1924. What, was, what went into that one?
1: Yeah, so um, as we all remember last year, uh, Soto of had the game when he hit in the wild card game. Um, it, the ball, it was, it was a it kind of squirted past the right field. There was an error, but it really was a hard bounce to navigate and scored all three runs, uh, including the go-ahead run, and that's won the game an inning later. And um, it reminded me of um, Washington's first World Series in 1924 when it, you know, Earl McNeely had a ground ball in the 12th inning of Game 7, and it bounced over the uh, third baseman's head and scored the winning run. So to me, both of those things kind of indicate a team of destiny. Destiny, You know, it's like how many of things happened, including Max Scherzer and everything else, um, coming back from his injury in the World Series, how many things like this happened where you have to think, well, maybe this, they're, they were fated to win this.
0: Absolutely. Later, you talk about the World Series in 1924, and what, what caught me was the um, your story about the United States Marine Corps uh, pantomiming the road games. So fans would come and watch them on the on the diamond move around. Is that how it worked?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, that's right. So um, the reason I, I thought of this was the watch parties right. at Giants Park during the playoffs, including the World Series. And to me, they were a modern day version of this of this pantomime you just described. Um, the fans would go to Griffith Stadium when the Senators were playing in New York play the Giants. But obviously, there was no TV back then. Mm-hmm. And so the Marines, um, they would uh, get wire transmissions from New York, find out what it was, you know, double the gap. And they would pantomime that. They would actually, you know, a Marine would actually run, you know, hit, swing the bat and run for first and then to second base. And there'd be outfielders that would pretend they're throwing the ball in. <laughs> it was pretty pretty incredible. It shows you how, how dedicated Nats or centers fans were back then.
0: Mm-hmm. And we were able to draw some, some comparisons between, obviously, the, probably the greatest pitcher in uh, D.C. baseball history as well as baseball history and Walter Johnson uh, to both uh, what Max Scherzer did, uh, overcoming injury, and because um, that's what Walter Johnson had to go through in 1925, and then what Patrick Corbin did in Game 7, uh, the relief outing. And if I'm not mistaken, Walter Johnson also pitched in relief in 1924 in the World Series? Yeah, well,
1: I'll, take, I'll take 24 first. Okay. So Johnson lost his um, – his first two starts of the next 24-year-old series, and he, he got really shelled in the second start. And um, he wound up coming into the game, game seven in the ninth inning and pitched four scoreless mm-hmm. innings and got the win. And Patrick Corbin, as many of us remember, got shelled in his last start before game seven, and pitched very poorly, actually, then came in um, to game seven and pitched, I think it was three scoreless innings mm-hmm. uh, to get the win. So very similar uh, kind of uh, chronology. Now we go to 25 the next year. Um, we all remember that Max Schroeser had this horrible injury where he, he could even, couldn't even lift his, his arms over his head, um, and he was scratched from game five. Then he winds up pitching game seven and does a great job. You know, he grits through five innings and, and really helps them win that game, although he wasn't the winning pitcher. Well, Walter Johnson had a story like that, that it, but it didn't have happy in 1925. He had a hamstring injury trying to leg out Trying to extend a single into a double uh, in, uh, I think it was game five. And then um, in game seven, he really wasn't himself. He gave up 15 hits, Walter Johnson, you know, 15 hits in one game, and they lose nine to seven. So I remember before Scherzer actually pitched the game, but when he was already announced as a starter, I was just thinking and and posting as well, I hope this isn't a precursor, and luckily it wasn't.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then the final final part of the chapter that, you know, you kind of, brought it all together. Um, you can, uh, there, There's more comparisons between 1924 and 2019. You spent about a page or page and a half talking about that. Um, what, are, what are a couple more that fans will, will read about uh, when they open up your book?
1: Well, both teams, the 24 Senators and the 2019 Nats, started off very poorly. We all remember the Nats. Started 19 and 31. The Senators were 24 and 26. As Babe Ruth wrote in his autobiography, no team ever got quicker, hotter than the Nats. Who's alive today, he'd probably say the same thing. I'm sorry, the Senators, he'd probably say the same thing about last year's Nats if he was still alive. The Nats won 93 games. The Senators won 92 games. Uh, and they both finished uh, the regular season with 14 and six stretches the last 20 games. And one last uh, interesting comparison, only five teams in World Series history ever overcame a multi-run deficit in the seventh inning or later. The Senators were the first team to do it, and the Nats are the last team to do it. So it's very unusual to mount that kind of rally late in the seventh game of a world series and two Washington teams have done it out of the five who have ever done it. So I think that's pretty interesting.
0: And so to wrap up a little bit, I want to switch gears. Um, Cause in addition to your books, um, you know, you're, you're a journalist as well. And, and I recently read an article from you uh, in the sports business journal about doubleheaders. and considering what baseball is going through right now, we don't necessarily know what the schedule is going to look like. Doubleheaders could be uh, more prevalent. Um, they could be scheduled instead of, you know, having them come out because of rainouts or postponements. So your article was very, it was very timely. Um, can you go into a little bit about what you wrote about and kind of what happened with the Senators in 1945?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so when I, when I wrote that piece a couple months ago, um, there was a lot of talk about maximizing the number of games. Things are looking a little uncertain now. We don't know what's going to happen with the season. Uh, but if that goal is to get as many games in, especially with a couple of months, or really three months at least, uh, off the schedule, what better way, I thought, than maximize, to maximize that with doubleheaders. And I also I argue that when fans come back next year, hopefully, um, that baseball should bring back single-emission doubleheaders, which were very common when I was a kid. And I think it would help attract families and get kids to the ballpark and really help baseball get a younger fan base, which it wants to do. So To you answer your question, about 1945, the Senators played an astonishing 44 doubleheaders that year. I mean, that's unbelievable. And they even played five consecutive doubleheaders in um, the first week of August in D.C. Imagine in the D.C. heat playing 10 games in five days. Real quick story, they were so strapped for players. Their bullpen was taxed, and they, they could not get out of the fourth inning of a game against the Red Sox. And their only loss in those 10 games, that they brought in a guy named Bert Shepard, who was a one-legged pitcher who had an artificial leg. And he pitched his only game. That was his only game ever. He pitched five and third innings, gave up only one run, if you can believe it lifetime ERA of 169 here's a funny little postscript to that the guy that he replaced I bet his name he also ironically only pitched his only game that that afternoon he pitched one third of an inning I believe he kept seven earned runs his lifetime ERA (laughs) 189.00 so these two guys complete opposites but just shows you what baseball was like during the world because you didn't have your best players at the time
0: were those um were they all scheduled or was it because of weather
1: um, some were scheduled. Uh, some were because of uh, rainouts, uh, and partly the uh, the centers owner Clark Griffith um, he wanted to end the season a week early mm-hmm. so he could rent out the stadium, Griffith Stadium, um, to the uh, to the Washington Redskins, and so he wanted to really kind of condense things, and that, that was one reason you had so many doubleheaders that year.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think about when you tell that story. I think about the roster size and just how taxed those players had to be, and not just playing uh, baseball in August in the D.C. Heat, those were all day games, right?
1: There were actually a few night games. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, yeah, I, I looked that up. I was interested, interested to find out. I think two of the doubleheaders were night games. But even still, a doubleheader at night, you know, put it in air quotes, um, that's going to have to start at like 5 or 5.30. You're right. not going to have 8. So really, you're playing several hours under the sun, even in the night doubleheaders.
0: Yeah, that's brutal. Um, well, Fred, thank you for joining us uh, to talk about the book, uh, can you remind listeners where they can purchase it um, and where they can all find all of your other great work on, on baseball history and, and sports in general?
1: Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, you can find it on amazon.com, barnesandnobles.com. And if you want to see some of my stories where I go into detail on um, some of these comparisons between the Nats and the Senators, just go to fredfromer.com and it's uh, fromers
0: F-R-O-M-M-B-R. Awesome. Well, once again, thanks for uh, returning to the podcast after uh, A couple year break after we had a really good series on the all-star games a couple years ago i hope fans jump back in and and listen to those because there are some really good uh, historical discussions thank you for all your hard work and your your dedication to dc baseball history it it really helps out the fan base and people that want to learn so um, once again thanks for joining the podcast and we will talk to you soon thank you so much kyle we enjoyed it thanks again to fred for joining the podcast be sure to check out the book um Order it wherever you can order your books and find him on Twitter uh, to see all of his good work. Uh, don't forget to check out our past episodes, including our most recent one with Chris Poitras of Jostens, the maker of two, of our 2019 World Series rings. Check out uh, From the Booth with Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler. Um, and remember to send in your memories from our From the Stands podcast. Any comments, questions, or suggestions for the podcast, find me on Twitter at, at Kyle Brostowitz or at Nationals. I always love hearing from our listeners. So Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on the Crowley W Live from the Field podcast.